Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, the Linton Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast features weekly sermons along with conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in a world in need of repair. I'm the Reverend Amber Carswell, Episcopal Priest and Associate Rector of Calvary Episcopal Church here in downtown Memphis. Our guest this evening is Father James Allison, Catholic priest, theologian, and author, who is the torchbearer for exploring and expanding the thinking of René Girard. In addition, he is known for his firm but patient insistence on truthfulness in matters gay as an ordinary part of Christianity and for his pastoral outreach in the same sphere. It is so good to be with James this evening to discuss his work, Christianity, and our place in the world around us. Please join me in welcoming Father James Allison. Welcome to you, James. So good to see you here. Thrilled to be here. It is truly an honor to be here with you tonight. Uh, When I've told folks here at Calvary about this interview, they say, wait, how do I know that name? And I say it's because you've heard him quoted from the pulpit every other week for the past couple of years now. You're known for your work with mimetic theory uh, in particular, which is, uh, on my best days, I think I fumble to explain it very well. So for those of us here in the room and listening beyond, Uh, Can you explain the basics of this theory and why it might be important? Yeah, I can give it a go anyhow. (laughs) Give it a go. Why not? It's really an insight rather than a theory. And it's good to say that because when people hear the word theory, they they kind of want to crawl back into their shells. (laughs) But uh, it's an insight which was held by a man called René Girard, uh, a French thinker who died aged just shy of his 92nd birthday a few years back. His last job was as professor at Stanford University here in, in the United States. And he understood, because of his reading of novels, something about desire that's actually very old, and yet, once you explain it, very new. Which is that, unlike our pop psychology images of desire, which is that we have this blob somewhere inside us called the me or the I, and that this has desire which goes out of it like arrows towards certain objects, so that I desire X or Y, and those are my desires, they originate in me. He's saying, no, actually we desire according to the desire of another. We're all, first and foremost, imitators. If it weren't for imitation, we would not be viable as human beings. (laughs) We all learn our way into language, into gesture, into sounds, into interactions from other people. And little by little, we learn what they want of us. In other words, their intentions we pick up by imitation as well. We learn to desire according to the desire of others. As you all know, uh, there is one major industry that really doubles down on this knowledge, and that's the advertising industry. Mm -hmm. If they want to sell you something, they have to convince you that you want it. And the way they do that is by 
depending on your gender, draping either a chick or a hunk across <laughs> the hub of a, <laughs> of a car or a, whatever it is they want to sell you and make it look as though aforementioned chick or hunk is having a great time serves to encourage you to think, oh, if only I were like her or him, then my life would just be peachy, as I believe you say in, in these parts. <laughs> um, but So we all understand how this works, but we understand it much better when we see other people doing it than when we see ourselves doing it. So that's his first insight. And then the second insight is that because we are all so imitative, which is a good thing without which we wouldn't learn, it means that it's very, very easy for that imitation to turn into rivalry. When we all imitate each other, that's fine, provided that there is a significant number of goods to go around. But you've all seen small infants in a room in which there are identical toys and easily enough for all the infants involved. Mysteriously, one infant will get hold of one of the toys and suddenly all the infants will want that toy. Mm. And it's no good explaining to them that they're just the same as all the other toys that came out of the cereal packets. Uh, <laughs> that there's really no difference. No, it's because that guy or that girl has that particular one. Everybody has to have it. In other words, it's very easy for our desire to turn rivalrous. The flip side of imitation is rivalry. And once you get people worked up in rivalry then they're at each other. There is literally no resolution to the possible conflict. And we've been dealing with this throughout our history since we first stumbled off the trees and into the North African savannah, however many hundreds of thousands of years ago that was. Um, but we have found, our race has found, a way to survive this constant increase of imitative rivalry such that we might all end up fighting against each other the whole time and that has only happened accidentally which is when we gang together mysteriously and without anybody telling us how and find someone whose fault it is and this is something which people have noticed in movements of conflict of all periods is that what appears to be a very fluid situation of all against all can quite suddenly turn into an all against one. And at that moment, peace breaks out. Because there is unanimity. Of course, unanimity minus one. Mm. But his or her voice doesn't count. Because he or she is dead. And that therefore, thereafter, people are able to say, gosh... You know, that was a special person. We were clearly right to get them because in leaving, they gave us peace. Before, they were stirring up our trouble, but in leaving, they gave us peace. In other words, they attribute the result to the victim rather than to their own violence. So it was the bringing together of these two ideas, the idea that we desire according to the desire of each other and the scapegoat mechanism, which is how people have come to call Girard's thought in this area, that then opened him up to the realization that that mechanism happens in all cultures and all societies, in ancient myths throughout the world. And so he expected to find the same myths in the Bible. And he did, but with a very striking difference. The Bible tells the same stories 
but turns them on their head so that the thrown out one is the one who tells the truth rather than the surviving victimizers. It's the lynched one whose voice gets to speak. So just to give you an example, in the story of the founding of ancient Rome, you have two brothers, Romulus and Ramus. They both squabble as to who's to get to, get to found the city. Ramus defies Romulus, who's busy building the city wall, so Romulus kills him. And the gods turn up and they pat him on the back and they say, well done, old fellow, you know, nasty business, but someone had to do it, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, what, what, what may look like a murder was in fact a sacrifice and was necessary for the founding of the city. Uh, uh, whereas the Hebrew version of that, which is the Cain and Abel story, you get basically the same structure. But God turns up and says, where is your brother? His voice cries to me from the ground. In other words, you, Cain, are indeed going to get to found culture, which he does. But over it, there is a question mark. And that's the genius of the biblical perspective. They're beginning to become aware that the real voice is the voice of the victim, which, of course, is then fulfilled in the passion when God himself turns out to be our victim and the one who forgives us enables us to enter into a new world. Yeah, and I, I'm struck that, that we get both stories in the Bible, though, too, right? That we get... Um, these beautiful instances of the victim speaking back of, of what Abel's blood cries out from the ground. Um, Jesus returns. I, but we get the other part of the story too, the people who are seen as outcast and as the fault, oh, yes. the, uh, as the impure element that is bringing ruin um, to the civilization, right? That's, oh, yes. And so what, what do you do with that in this uh -huh. theory? Oh, how long have you got? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Not very long. Um, Girard referred, referred to those as texts in travail. I think that's a very good term. Say Te that again, Texts sorry? in travail. Travail. Because what you usually have is the very slow process of ancient mythical accounts in which things are blamed on God and other people, gradually coming down to earth and becoming stories which involve people like us and where our responsibility starts to become evident. But it's a very long, slow process, um, and we live through it in our own days. Mm. There are all sorts of mythical, mystical elements to such things that it takes people a long time to get through. I think that uh, many of you will remember the onset of AIDS in the early 80s, and the amount of mythical religious nonsense that was talked <laughs> at the time, which seriously got in the way, for instance, of uh, dealing with what was uh, very quickly determined by scientists to be a virus, <laughs> um, how much, if you like, how, how slow we are to climb out of mythology and magical thinking into the possibility of serious, relational, and therefore scientific and rational thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the texts in the Bible usually are different moments of working through that. And sometimes you can watch it rather, rather beautifully. If you compare the text of uh, the story of the city of Sodom and Lot and the angels, which involves two angels coming to town, a resident alien offering them hospitality, them saying, no, they didn't need it, and he's saying, oh, yes, you do, the townsfolk are, you know, they're, they're not too keen on, on resident aliens and, and visitors, they're 
ICE is pretty strong in this part of the mm -hmm. uh, in this part of the world. Um, so you better come indoors. And then the people of the town get together and say, we want to interrogate these people to find out what's really going on. And then they start squabbling to get in because he won't he won't uh, let them in. Uh, so you haven't got he hasn't you haven't got a warrant. And I will give you my daughters not as sexual bait, as some of our bad interpretations and translations say, but as, what do you say, when, as bail, effectively, as, as proxy, when you hand over someone, so you want to guarantee that these foreigners will leave under good condition tomorrow, okay, you can look after my daughters, and I will only get them back from you when... What's the term for that in... It's, it's not so much hostage, but it's a, as if it were hostage, yeah, it's a bargaining tool, and so they then go... But then thereafter, you have the destruction with uh, sulfur and brimstone and all of that, and poor old Mrs. Lot getting turned into a, a pillar of, uh, of salt, which is not a bundle of fun. But then if you, read, if you read the story at the very end of the Book of Judges, you have an astoundingly similar story in which a Levite and his concubine are traveling, and they come to a town, and they think that it will be safe because it's an Israelite town, so they go in, and they want to take a rest, sleeping in the square, and a resident alien comes to them and says, oh, if I were you, I wouldn't <laughs> sleep in the square. You know, this lot's a, it's a rough bunch here. So he said, no, no, no problem at all. And they said, no, yes, it is a problem, come in. And guess what? The people of the town gather together, and they, um, they've also spotted the concubine, so they also uh, have quite deliberate designs on her, and they try to bully the, the resident alien into giving his daughter and the Levite's concubine. But in it, somehow his daughter stays safe and the concubine is given and she's gang-raped all night and destroyed and killed and left on the doorstep for dead. And the, the Levite gets up, finds her, tells her to get up. She doesn't. He picks her up, puts her on his horse, uh, donkey, sorry, takes her back home and then he cuts her up in 12 pieces and mails her by FedEx to all the other tribes so they know what's happened. Um, and they all come together and said, what a horror. And they then destroy the people of of uh, Benjamin uh, from the town and you end up with very similar situation as you have Lot has his two daughters with no nice young sodomite men to give them children so they have to get daddy drunk so that he will he will give them children and the um, the Gibeonites have to the um, people of Benjamin that are left without any women and children because they have all been killed so they have to sue to be given some women and children so they can have wives but the people of Israel have taken a vow to God that they are not allowed to give wives to anybody. So they say, oh, don't you worry. Well, so we don't break our, our vow. We can't give you them, but they're going to go out to dance for a festival fairly soon. So if you hide behind the bushes, you can rape them and carry them off. And then we won't have broken our vow. Anyhow, so I hope you're suitably impressed by the family values of this book. Um, <laughs> um, but the, <laughs> this is seriously, I'm not making this up. You can look it for yourself. You can look this up for yourself. But I hope you can see that those two stories, in one, there are strange elements like divine fire and brimstone and pillars of salt and then the other it's straightforward human violence but the structure is identical in other words little by little people are learning to tell a terrible tale of what we do not a mythical tale of what they do does that make sense well and that as you're talking even about the most horrifying story i think that is it in, is, in scripture it's the most horrifying story in um, scripture the, yeah. I'm struck that as you explain this, um, that it's you're letting people sort of develop as they write this book, as they come to understand God. And we are very much still a developing people in understanding the mythical nature or sacrificial nature of our violence. And I, the competition and rivalry that plays out there, we speak of those things very positively. 
right? Uh, we speak of, of competition oftentimes with, as to do with the free market, right? Or our evolutionary instincts that make us who we are and the, the survival of the fittest, right? Um, that these are ways that we talk about how we become and have become the humans that we are. Um, and it's very rarely that we question that sense that, that maybe competition, maybe this rivalry uh, isn't the best story to be telling. Yeah, I think the people are beginning to become aware. There was this great change in the, between the 16th and 17th centuries with relation to this. Uh, I think it was a guy called Mandeville, who's thought to be one of the first economists, uh, who noticed that what used to be uh, private vices had become public virtues. And mm. by private vice, he means rivalry. Private it's, it's a sin. Envy is a sin. And yet, rivalry, which is envy over time, <laughs> having con been considered a sin throughout the ancient world in the Middle Ages, started to become a public virtue. But, as with envy, it didn't lose something basic about itself, which is that it presupposes scarcity. Its presupposition is there is not enough to go around so we need to be in competition to get it. And if we are in competition, we'll make more of it. That's very interesting because, again, that's the very, very reverse of any possible Christian understanding, which is what there is in the first place is abundance. Mm -hmm. And in as far as we are grateful for it, we will learn how to make more of it. <laughs> uh, this is a completely different approach. But it's astounding how, over the years, uh, that developed into, as you say, something which we just take for granted, that rivalry in the form of competition is a good. Now, it's a very uh, fine thing, because there are clearly forms of competition that are good, um, provided we know that they're a game. If you want to help someone grow into being a good tennis player, or a good anything, you help compete with them because it's a good way to strengthen their muscles, their adroitness with the use of the sword or whatever it is. And that's a good way, provided you all realize it's a game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that losing does not matter. What matters is playing. But when losing becomes a terrible thing and the only thing that matters is winning, well, then you're deep into the realm where I'm afraid we are now of uh, zero-sum politics and zero-sum economics. <laughs> I'm the Reverend Amber Carswell, and this is the Lenten Preaching Edition of the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. This evening, I'm with Catholic priest and theologian James Allison. Tonight, we are discussing his work and thought. And James, we here at Calvary, a group of us, have been studying your essays from your collection entitled On Being Liked. Uh, to me, these helped us understand some of the basics of this theology that you so beautifully articulate, uh, while also allowing us to enter into a real tangible matter close to a lot of our hearts, and certainly relevant to the church today, and that is how we think about homosexuality, God, and the church. Um, obviously, Episcopalians are in a different place than Catholics are on this, but oftentimes when people ask Episcopalians about LGBT issues and our acceptance as a church, we appeal to a simple sort of throwaway line like, 
you know, well, God loves everybody, or love wins, or a sort of easy cultural answer. But you have some really robust arguments around this, um, and I wonder if you could help us maybe deepen our conversations in this room. I don't know whether my arguments are robust, but if you like, I think my starting point is robust, which is that this is not a peripheral issue, that this is an issue of basic Christianity. If we get our understanding of basic Christianity right, then it's perfectly obvious that as we've discovered the existence of gay and lesbian people to be a simple fact of nature, uh, so it's perfectly obvious that they are part of the kingdom of God in as far as they want to grow in grace and love and discipleship like anybody else. For me, the key thing, and I have my own personal experience uh, here, I was brought up, uh, as you may know, an evangelical Anglican. I was baptized by a man called John Stott, who some of you may have heard of, as an infant, he was kind of the Pope of evangelical Anglicanism. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, I know you don't have such things, but uh, but even his 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 friends and admirers, amongst whom my father was a very strong one, called him used to call him Pope Stott. Um, so uh, just to give you an idea of the, the importance he had in their in their minds, but he, he taught, and others have held a pretty serious form of uh, the fall as introducing fundamental depravity. Many of you will have heard that and some of you will have been brought up with it. Meaning that uh, until we're saved and washed by the blood of the Lamb, we suffer from our total depravity. And that when we're saved, then it's perfectly obvious that only the things that are good in the Bible and that Jesus talks about are able to be good. And homosexuality is one of the list of sins in the Old Testament for which Jesus uh, paid the price satisfying the wrath of God who was angry with these things. So how dare we suggest that homosexuality might be okay because that's suggesting that Jesus paid the wrong bill. Uh, he got his, you know, got his payment wrong. Uh, no, seriously, I say that because so many of the discussions concerning matters gay in fact turn out to be about the atonement rather than about matters gay, matters gay are a subsection of that. Mm-hmm. Now, it took me a long time to discover it, but one of the key understandings in the Catholic faith is that grace perfects nature. That is to say that the fall was serious, but not such as to radically destroy the goodness of the creation. And that God is not saving us from being human, saving us from the bodily condition. He's saving us as humans and as bodies. In other words, that there is something about our process of sanctification that is in organic continuity with who we are. And many of you will have discovered this. As you have grown in faith and grace, you will have discovered who you really were all along but didn't know before. That seems to be the right way, as it were. We don't start with our identity. Our identity is being given to us over time as we grow in in grace. But one of the consequences of grace perfecting nature is that it means that the only discussion about homosexuality, and this is, this is true within the, within the teaching structure of the Catholic Church, is about so-called natural law, not about the Bible passages. It's one of the strange features that the Catholic Church is perfectly aware that all the Bible passages used in this area, they're probably not to be read in that sense. And they should certainly never be used 
in a way that causes offences against charity towards real living people. So on the biblical side of things, the, the, the Catholic Church is actually quite cool about, about it. So, yeah, 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 okay. Uh, that's not our problem. Our problem is, is homosexuality really natural in the sense of, is it a defect of something? Or is it something that just is? And the official teaching is that it's a defect of something because that's the only way they can maintain the prohibition. Because Objectively disordered? Is that that's the their term. Yeah. Meaning disordered with regards its object. Mm -hmm. They say, well, all humans are intrinsically heterosexual because our sexual organs are designed for reproduction. And the only good and real sexual act is one that is between two people of opposite sex who are married and which is open to the possibility of procreation. Mm -hmm. Anything else is some form of defection from that. And anything which by its nature could never achieve that, such as, for instance, sexual acts between two people of the same sex, <laughs> uh, that is so-called intrinsically wrong. You say, okay, that would really be important if two people of the same sex who were having sex together were trying somehow to have a baby. <laughs> yeah. we, we would say that's probably a mistake of intelligence rather than... <laughs> We've got rather, deeper issues there. <laughs> rather, than, rather, than a, rather than a mistake, uh, rather than a moral mistake. And so they then have to say, oh, well, it's not just the act in itself. We have to say that they aren't really gay or lesbian. They've, they think they are, but that's a deception. They are, in fact, intrinsically heterosexual people who suffer from a grave objective disorder, which is their tendency. So basically, they're gaslighting you. They're saying, you aren't who you think you are. Now, until fairly recently, no one really knew. Different cultures at different times have dealt more or less in more or less friendly ways with same-sex love and interactions owing to what was visible and not was visible. Some people have regarded it as a pathology, other people as a vice, other people as basically something not to be talked about, sort of don't ask, don't tell. But it's only really since the end of the Second World War and the mass demobilization which occurred thereafter, that, which meant, as many of you will have witnessed, that significant proportions of young men and young women who had been sent either to fight in the army or to work in armaments factories had discovered that they weren't the only gay in the village. They had come from nothing Kansas, or I don't know what the equivalent of nothing Tennessee is, but, um, uh, and suddenly found that they were a, there were other people like them. And so rather than returning to the boonies, they decided to go to New York or Los Angeles instead, or San Francisco, where there seemed to be a mass. And so it was only in the 1950s that there became a sufficient density of people present who could be examined other than those who presented themselves to shrinks mm. for help, for the shrinks actually to be able to say, take a step back and say, we appear to be dealing with people who are not, don't suffer from pathologies that are related to homosexuality. They're just ordinary people. They have the same foibles as everybody else. It's just that their sexual orientation is different. And the delightfully named Dr. Evelyn Hooker in the in the 1950s was the first um, psy psychiatrist to to put the test out. She was she was, was challenged by gay friends of hers in Los Angeles. They say, "Listen, all these all your colleagues say that that we're there's some sort of pathology in us, but you've known enough of us to know that's not the case. Test them." So she did. She made a a test with the psychological profiles of 60 males, without 
removing from the profile only the information of the sexual orientation and challenged all her shrink colleagues to say which was straight and which was gay because they all said, oh, you can tell who's gay. We know because of this psychology or that, that pathology or this, that, the other. And they all failed completely, all of which demonstrated that we're all as screwed up as each other, <laughs> uh, but neither more nor less. And that was the important point. And ever since then, it's become pretty clear that being gay or lesbian is a non-pathological minority variant in the human condition. Another example of a non-pathological minority variant in the human condition would be left-handedness. About 9% of the population worldwide in every culture we know of is left-handed. There were people at a certain time in many cultures who thought left-handedness was a defective form of right-handedness, mm -hmm. including the late king of my country, who, as you know, was forced by his bully father uh, to learn to write with his uh, left hand tied behind his back, and the result was the stammer, uh, which was talked about in the, king, the film The King's Speech. So for moral theology, for Catholic moral theology, the only question is, is it true that being gay or lesbian is in fact a non-pathological minority variant like left-handedness, or is it something that we would describe in modern terms as something objectively disordered like anorexia? No one doubts that anorexia is a serious disorder. Why, if an anorexic is left to follow their pattern of desires without some sort of control, they will die. It very obviously has self-destructive effect on their lives. So, my point has been saying, pushing the line, actually, the moment you realize that this is part of created nature, a regularly occurring non-pathological minority variant, then, according to Catholic doctrine, it flourishes starting from where it is. Mm. So that's the only discussion uh, that's available. And of course, the vast majority of uh, my Catholic colleagues and friends, and certainly our bishops, know this perfectly well, but they're too frightened to say so. Uh, this is a, an issue which is far too close to the bone of the majority of priests and bishops, for the obvious reason. The closet is what has given them a livelihood. So I hope that's something of an answer to your... It is. A real beauty of Catholicism is to say that there is this great body of thoughts, this theology, um, that can be changed um, and develop over time. A lot of times how I feel, maybe living in, in the Bible Belt in the South, that what we encounter most is the sort of proof texting that you said oh, yeah. that the Catholic Church doesn't have a problem with, right? That the Bible says this, and so this is very clear, um, and that's why it's wrong. Besides, like, besides, what I would maybe just describe as an instinctual disgust with homosexuality, right? That it's the pointing to these texts that really rules the conversation around here. Yeah. Well, and in a sense, all one can do is explain over and over again mm -hmm. what's really going on in those texts. And now there is, I mean, the, there is so much good biblical scholarship available right. to demonstrate, I mean, some pretty basic things like we have literally no clear idea what is meant by the verse in Leviticus, which is used uh, to... The, the verse which is normally translated, thou shalt not lie a man with a man uh, as a woman. It is an abomination. You've heard that before. Okay, there is a perfectly good way of saying that in ancient Hebrew, and it is not what's in the text. Mm. <laughs> if that was what they wanted to say... There is a simple formulation of words that enables to say a man should not lie with a man as with a woman, it is an abomination. That is not what 
the uh, text says. It's actually got rather more mysterious use of words. And no one is quite sure why, for instance, the last word is wife rather than woman, because that word is used five times in the previous five verses. <laughs> and in each occasion, it's the obvious meaning is wife. Why should it suddenly be translated as woman only in that, <laughs> only in that verse? It's most mysterious. Why is there a different, why does the word start with the word for male rather than man? It's not at all clear. It may be, some people are saying, it may be that it's part of uh, a list of things that you're not supposed to do because the Canaanites did it. Because the first verses are full of stuff saying, oh, well, you know, the Canaanites did all this terrible thing and I vomited them out, but you, you are to be part of the holiness code. So you are to be um, different from that. It may be that. Or, and I think that this is the most intelligent uh, suggestion I've seen, but it's only a suggestion because no one knows. The suggestion is that the previous list, which is of different forms of incestual relationship, you shall not sleep with your father's wife, you shall not sleep with your father's second wife or third wife, you shall not sleep with your aunt, you shall not sleep with... It's a whole list of, basically, it assumes an entirely male audience, and it's a list of females who are out of your grasp, as it were. And it's just conceivable that that phrase at the bottom is the equivalent of, and for all your male relatives, idem. The same, meaning not with your uh, mother's husband or with your <laughs> uncle or with... <laughs> In other words, that for all those references to the women you should not sleep with, you should not sleep with the male equivalent. It's conceivable that it means, may mean something as simple as that. But the answer is, no one knows. And anyone who tells you with any certainty that they do are lying. <laughs> the same is true with the word in the New Testament which in some of your translations is translated as homosexual this is the word arsenokoites or arsenokoitai which is a neologism in either invented by St Paul or which came into circulation in his lifetime because it's, there is no reference to it in any more ancient Greek uh, text and some of our Bibles translate it as homosexual does anybody here know when the word homosexual was invented? When it became a pathology? <laughs> Getting pretty close. But 1869, there was quite literally no notion of a sort of person who was a certain way with a word to describe it until 1869. Before there were acts, there were accusations, there were sodomites, there was any number of things that you could, but the word homosexual was invented in 1869. So anyone who is translating an ancient word whose meaning we don't know as homosexual, it's not translation. It's a bloody attack. It's violence on people and should be denounced as such. It's a gross act of violence because it is doing exactly what I'm glad to say the Vatican congregation say you shouldn't do, which is to actualize ancient categories in such a way that they point to modern groups which is a terrible thing to do. It's clearly against charity. But nevertheless, since the 1950s, it's strange that it was since the 1950s that this tendency started up. The earlier translations, translated in the, the German translations, for instance, uh, translated as men who sleep with boys, so much closer to what we would now call a paedophile. Except that even that is not an accurate translation because there were perfectly good Greek words available for that, including the word 
paiderastes, from which we get pederast, which was not a disapproved thing in that time. So if St. Paul had wanted to uh, dis pederasts, he could have, but he didn't. He chose a bizarre ancient word that probably refers to whatever they thought at the time might be meant by Leviticus, but which seems to have been something like the kind, if we have any idea at all, the kind of pretty boys who get involved in temple prostitution um, because there were all sorts of cults uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean at the time which involved temple prostitution and orgies and so on and so forth. Um, it might be that. But again, anybody who tells you with certainty that they know what it is, they're making it up. When, if you see two words, of which one word is arsene, meaning male, and the other mean coites, meaning lying, lying as in lying down, not lying as in telling lies. If you have those two words together and you put them together, it's not clear in English that the word that has two meaning, two words that you do understand go together has the obvious meaning. If I were to describe to you someone as a badass, would I be saying either that their posterior <laughs> was <Very naughty. laughs> in some way evil? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. In other words, cuss words are notoriously uh, unstable over time. If you, if, if, you were, if you were to write down in a modern text badass and then imagine people 200 years' time with somewhat boring exegetical spectacles who say, ah, oh, he was a badass. This meant that without any doubt at all, he had a very disturbed posterior. Uh, <laughs> and then you would write a doctorate on the subject. But this is, uh, this is not true. And it's the same, it's the same with a, another word, excuse my saying so, bitch. Bitch is a classic word. Just think how many meanings. Or bitch. stud muffin, you know? There's a food article at the uh, end of it. Yes. Think, well, think, of all the, think of all the different yeah. uh, permutations. In other words, we're very silly if we think that we can understand a previous generation's cuss words. Straight off. We may have to have someone explain them to us. Interesting. <laughs> someone who knew how they were used at the time. So just to, just to give you an idea of, of that. But little by little, we become... We become aware that what St. Paul was talking about was clearly part of the idolatrous cults of the ancient world and had nothing to do with anything which we call homosexuality because our understanding of that is something between unrelated people of the same sex who share a certain social equality. At no stage in the ancient world or even in the uh, the world of St. Paul and the first few centuries, were such relationships even considered. All the relationships implied social inequality between men and women and between men and men and between women and women. All the sexual mores were based on pretty substantial difference. The most obvious uh, sufferers from that being the very, very large slave population basically, who enjoyed no rights as to how they might or might not be used sexually by their masters or mistresses. Now, we're not too far removed from a period when not too far away from here that kind of thing happened. Uh, but no one seriously thinks that the sexual relations between masters and slaves were a good representative of Christian morality. Hmm. So yeah. I think it's quite important that we realize that... Uh, 
There is nothing in divine revelation concerning sexual relationships between unrelated same-sex persons of, social, of socially equal status. There is literally nothing in divine revelation concerning that. The only reference that might just be taken in that sense would be the relationship of Jonathan and David. But that started as a, as a very socially unequal relationship because Jonathan was the heir to the throne and David was a pretty shepherd boy. And it says he was a pretty boy. That's why his brothers didn't uh, think he would be suitable for king. But anyhow, uh, people seem to have taken a shining to the young man, both male and female. The only ones he responded to were the male ones. Saul's daughter was very keen on him as well, and Saul eventually allowed him to marry her, but David doesn't seem to have thought much of her. Yeah, but his heart went out to Jonathan. His heart yeah. was with Jonathan. Um, but because he then became, uh, if you like, of semi-royal status, at least there was some sort of equality going on by the time. But that's the nearest possible thing. It's not a very good example for a variety of reasons. So can, can I ask you one last question in our last couple of minutes here? Say you go to a party and someone you meet discovers that you are an openly gay Catholic priest. What happens at that point? Um, <laughs> and um, maybe, I guess I'm wondering, do you have a way to talk to someone, an elevator speech to say, here is what my place is in the church right now? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did. Hey, I don't really go to parties, and it's one, one of the reasons is exactly for that. <laughs> the I have very no awkward idea. scenario <laughs> that ensues. <laughs> I either go to parties with people I already know, in which case they're not going to ask me that. Uh, or I avoid parties, it's a general thing. So, But anyhow, I'm looking forward to being taken to your local uh, uh, watering holes. I believe there's one called the Pumping House by people who will be able to <laughs> accompany me in a friendly way without, uh, without embarrassing me before the... Uh... <laughs> be able to witness this firsthand. All right. <laughs> Please join me in thanking Father James Allison for his presence with us here tonight. Christians today often think that the days of ritual sacrifice are behind us, that it happened for a time in some strange bygone era, but in truth, sacrificial violence occurs all around us, from the violence overseas and at our borders deemed necessary to keep us safe, to the sacrifice of the environment for our ease and pleasure, to the everyday wrath that we kindle with our huddle of friends against the immigrant, the native, the rich, the poor, the conservative, the liberal, the old, the young, whatever threat we might perceive. We return to that same sacrificial system. We make peace among groups of ourselves by mutual hatreds. We know that the lines of division run incredibly deep in America. And not only that, but even the information we receive can be infinitely customizable to affirm our own beliefs, desires, party lines, keeping us solidly entrenched against seeing another way. Our Eucharistic prayer here at Calvary during this season of Lent reminds us that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for the whole world. And while some hear this as an abusive Father God who will only be satisfied with the death of his Son, we Christians believe that God became incarnate, willingly to enter this endless cycle of human violence, and that through Christ's resurrection, 
he actually broke it apart. If that's true, then his sacrifice can open our eyes to consider that perhaps it was never God who was the vengeful, bloodthirsty one, but that it was us all along. We, insofar as we live in Christ, can leave this instinctual cycle behind too. The Calvary Podcast Lenten Preaching Edition is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Linton Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you.